Um, but you killed it. I made him do that instead of me for a reason. I went to Christian school. It was on a very tight budget. And, uh, well, I guess that's where I should have learned. I guess I did learn all these there. Um, these names are hard. But we're in Genesis 14. It's an interesting chapter. I call it the chapter of firsts because there's so many firsts in this chapter. It's the first war that's ever mentioned in the Bible. Uh, the first mention of the word Hebrew. Abram's called a Hebrew. Uh, for the first time in this chapter. It's the first guy we meet that's a priest, first priest mentioned in the Bible, a guy named Melchizedek. We'll learn a little bit more about him today, what he has to teach us about Jesus. And it's kind of like probably, it's for some of you, going to be the first sermon you ever hear on the fact that we have to trust Jesus with our victories, that we have to trust Jesus on our good days, that we have to trust Jesus in the wind, in the winds of life. That's what this chapter is about. As you know, we're going line by line, verse by verse through the book of Genesis, seeing our first glimpse of Jesus, because though he was incarnate in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John through the virgin birth, uh, fully God, fully man, he was from the beginning doing work, even in the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And we're in this section of Genesis, chapter 12 through 25, that's all about Abram. Later, he's going to be called Abraham, which is what we normally call him, but here he's still Abram in these early chapters, and he's the man of faith. He's mentioned a little over 300 times in your Bible, and it's always in relation to this idea of faith and his faith. It wasn't a perfect faith. He's not a perfect man. Only Jesus is the perfect man, but he was a progressing man, and he was a notable man of great faith. And when we say that he was a man of faith, we mean that he was a man who relied on and who trusted in and who believed God in all things, through all things, for all things. And by all, we mean all. His downs and his ups, as we'll see today. We don't think about this often, but the Bible today is going to show us that it's very important that we maintain faith at all times, not just after our defeats, but after our victories because if we lose sight of God because of a victory in our victory after a victory those victories can end up being a great defeat for us in the end and that's sort of the gist of the story today we're going to dive in we're going to start in the middle of the chapter um, around verse 8 because it summarizes for us the background and the battle and then we'll get to uh, hopefully some lessons for us in 2021 but you got to be patient because to get there we got to go through the story and it's a fascinating one um, so stick with me we'll start verse 8 through 12 we'll read that again and kind of just get some more context uh, about and, and kind of calibrate our minds more around what's being said it says this verse 8 through 12 there went out uh, and there went out the king of Sodom. So that's one king, king of Gomorrah, second king, the king of Adma, third king, the king of Zeboim, fourth king, the king of Bela, so five kings. And they joined battle with them in the valley of Siddam. Some other kings are going to go fight some other kings. Here's one, Catalamer. I liked how Josh pronounced it better, Shido, whatever he said. I think it's Catalamer, at least that's what it says on YouTube. So anyway, Catalamer, uh, king of Elam, that's one. Tidal, king of nations. M. Raphael, king of Shinar, king of uh, Ariot, king of Eleazar. So here's the gist. It kind of summarizes this for us nicely in verse 9 at the end. He says, basically what we got here is a war, it's battle, got four kings taking on five kings. 
And in the Valley of Siddam, there was a whole bunch of, the ESV calls it, I think, bitumen pits, uh, bitumen pits. Okay, the King James that I'm reading from calls them slime pits. How we would all probably say it is that these were giant tar pits. Okay, so they're out, they're battling one guy, beating the other. They start running. Sodom and Gomorrah starts running. They find out that outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a bunch of tar pits. And the Bible says that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, which just means some of their armies fall in the tar pits. And then some lived through the tar pit situation, and they that remained fled to the mountain, so they escape. But the enemies catch up with them. They take the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and their victuals, the food supplies, and they went their way. So they plunder these people of Sodom and Gomorrah who have now escaped and run off from their cities trying to survive this. They even took some of the people as well. Look at verse 12. It says, And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, Abram's nephew, who at this point is dwelling in Sodom. They took his goods and departed. Okay, so let me give you the background and the battle. Okay, let's look at the background first. We learned this in verses 8 through 12. Also, I'm going to hit a little bit of what happens in verses 1 through 7, really just to give you the idea of the story. Basically, what we have here is an ancient gang war over territory. Okay, you got four kings towards the east side who, are, are, who have already conquered five kings on the west side. And for 12 years, we find out these five kings, they had to pay taxes to these four kings. Okay? They do that for 12 years. And the guy leading the charge over here, these four kings, that guy's name is Catolamer. Okay, so he's the big dog of the four kings. For 12 years, the five kings pay taxes to the four kings. But on the 13th year, those five kings were like, no more, right? It's been over a decade. We're not playing these games anymore. There's five of us, four of you, we're done. So they throw this Old Testament Boston Tea Party. You know, they put up their don't tread on me flag. And they're like, we're not paying taxes, okay? Some of you, this is your live verse. All right, we're praying for you. I hope nobody finds out. All right, so number 14, um, you got this guy, Catalamer. Sorry, not number 14, This in year 14. So that was year 13, no more taxes. Year 14, right, Catalamer, he brings those three friends of his, four kings, declare war on the five kings again because they skipped taxes last year. And the king of Sodom and Gomorrah are among these five kings, and they start getting whooped. So they flee from their city. They flee from the battlefield, and they run off to who knows where. Right? And as they're running out, a bunch of their guys fall into the tar pits. Right? I don't know how that happens. I googled these. Hey, these are very large. They're very obvious. But we all got that one friend. right? That clumsy friend is going to end up in the tar pit. Right? It's a tough way to go. Right? And you can argue at lunch, who is that one friend in your group? Right? Who's that family member for you? But they end up in tar pits. The rest of them, they live through, they see the tar pits go around, but they end up being taken uh, captive. They are survivors, but yet now they are prisoners of war. And we see in verse 12 that among these people, there's Abram's nephew, Lot. Right? Lot is with them. That Lot is taken captive. That Lot is now a prisoner of war, and all of his goods have been plundered. Okay? So we talked a lot about Lot last week. Uh, if you need to go listen to that on the podcast, we talked about that in chapter 13 where he separates from Abram. And one of the things we mentioned was that Lot is sort of this biblical picture of a backslider. He's, a, he's, he's just your classic 
backslidden believer. The Bible tells us he does believe in the Most High God, the God of Abraham, but that he doesn't really give him his life. He spends his, his, his belief fighting against God rather than following God. And it's clear that where that gets him here in chapter 14. In chapter 13, all we know is that he pitches his tent towards Sodom, like to be near the city of sin. By chapter 14, he's living in Sodom, right? So at some point, he's dabbling with, yeah, I'm going to go to the market just once a week, once a day. He, you know, uh, maybe I'll move my tent a little closer. No, I'm just renting. Before you know it, he is a full-blown citizen of Sodom, and now he is paying for it dearly as he has been taken captive. It's where all backsliddenness ends up, in captivity. Right? So that's the background of what's going on in Genesis chapter 14. But now let's look at the battle that ensues from this. Okay, Verse 13 says, There came one that escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. Right? He's the Hebrew. In other words, he's not part of the four kings. He's not part of the five kings. He doesn't live in any of these cities. He's not involved. But one of Lot's guys, presumably, came and told Abram, Lot's in trouble. Now, this is kind of a humorous moment to some degree. I mean, probably not to you, but to Bible nerds like me, uh, who have, I guess, too much time on their hands, uh, this could kind of funny, because in the last chapter, it was Lot's men who were complaining about Abram and Abram's men to the point where they couldn't even live in the same land. And now the tables have turned, and they decide, no, actually, I like Abram, and we really need Abram. And so one of Lot's guys who just caused all this commotion in chapter 13, decides in chapter 14, actually, we could uh, use some help. And Abram's a good man. Abram's a godly man. He's a man of faith. And so Abram's the kind of guy. May we all be this kind of guy. Abram's the kind of guy who, to where even though Lot just separated from him to be close to Sodom, he took the good side of the land and left his uncle Abram to fend for himself even though Lot just went through this whole dispute with Abram and took advantage of the situation for his own good, even though all that just happened, Abram's like, look, he's family. He's family. And nothing's going to change that. So Abram turns into a Hebrew ninja warrior who is going to go after and rescue his long-lost backslidden nephew, Lot. Look at this in verse 14. It says, When Abram heard that his brother, his family, his kin, Lot, was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them, that's the enemy kings, these four kings, to Dan, which we don't know what that means, but if you did know what it means, you would know this is about 100 miles away. Okay, so Abram at this point is like 75. I'm talking, that, that's like a very valid number. He's over 75. And apparently on Abram's estate, he has trained 318 of his staff for war. And somehow he has 318 men worth of weapons to arm this, this little army with. And he kind of rounds them up and says, boys, we're going to war. I mean, this is fascinating, right? Abram's got like his own militia. I mean, this is like rabbi meets Rambo. 
And he goes out ready. I just think this is a fascinating part of the story. Abram's like, oh, Lot's in trouble? Hold up. Like, I just see him whistling or some, like, weird signal. And all these dudes just come running in from the farm, just like, let's go. They get in their SUV, their, their trucks, their, their Hummers, and they just start rolling up to Dan. It's about 100 miles away that they go, okay? Now, as impressive as all this is, 318 trained men, we all agree that's probably far less than the armies of these four kings. They probably got more people, right? So this is definitely awesome, Abram, but it's an uphill battle. Like, he's got his work cut out for him. In this case, Abram's still the underdog. So he comes all the way up to 100 miles, surrounding these armies of the four kings, and he's got to find a strategy and a plan, and his plan is to attack at night. I'd say it's a clutch move. Verse 15, he says he divided himself, means he divides those 318 guys, the allies that were with him, and by night he smote them. That is ancient Hebrew for he whooped them, right? You don't want to get smoked, okay? Let me just tell you, if you've got smote, that is a bad day for you, right? He smoted them and pursued them to Hobah, which is on the left of Damascus. That's another hundred miles, so he and his men divide up into teams, attack from different angles at night, and they whoop these guys, these four kings. Right? The armies of these four kings start running, and Abram's guys just keep going. They chase them. Right? I mean, this is like and if you start a fight in Greenville and you end up in Columbia, that's a sign of defeat. I mean, being in Columbia at all is a sign of defeat. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, this is a sign of, I mean, like they just kept fighting and chasing and fighting and all the way up to this place right outside Damascus, another 100 miles away, 200 miles now from Abram's home. The idea here, when it says, hey, they got all the way to Damascus, the idea that the author for the original audience is painting is that this is a major, undisputed victory for Abram and his men. I mean, this is victory. This is a mountaintop moment. It's a big win. And it gets even better. Keep looking at verse 16. It says, and he, that's Abram, brought back all the goods. He brought back again his brother Lot and his goods, the women also, and the people. So Abram's coming back down 100 miles towards Sodom. He's got the wealth that was taken from Sodom. He's got the people who were taken from Sodom, so the prisoners of war. And he meets his goal of bringing back his nephew Lot, his nephew Lot's family, and his nephew Lot's possessions. Mission accomplished. Score one, Abram, zero, Catalamer. Right? Abram gets the gold medal. He gets to take the victory lap. Right? He's the American Idol. He's awarded MVP. He's the winning candidate. At this moment, he's inducted to the Patriarch Hall of Fame. Victory, victory, victory is the idea of verse 16. Now, what's really, really interesting about this chapter, Genesis 14, in this story, is that this is not the end of Genesis 14. The physical battle is over, but we see as we continue reading, the spiritual battle has just begun. Right, so we got the background, we got the battle, and you think it's going to be over, but then 
it's the battle continued. It just takes a different form. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says that the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram after his return from the slaughter of Catalamer. Okay, now go to verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he's the priest of the Most High God. He goes out to meet Abram. So Abram's walking back to Sodom with the trail of people, Lot likely at the front by him, because that's what he went for. He's got a trail of wealth behind him. They're marching back towards the city, and two kings come out to greet him. We're introduced to two kings. They are representatives of opposing lives, opposing sides. And these are very weighty opposites at that. You got Melchizedek, who seemingly comes out of nowhere because he's not part of the four kings or the five kings. We don't, I mean, it's, there's a mystery here. But Melchizedek comes out. He's the king of Salem. That's ancient, old, old Jerusalem. And Salem means peace. So the king of peace comes out. And then the king of Sodom at the same time comes out. Sodom is an Old Testament city filled with sin. And so the king of sin comes out to meet him at the same time after this victory. So these two kings represent literally Jesus coming to bless him after victory, Satan coming to tempt him after victory. One's going to offer him humility and connection with the Most High God who gave him the victory, and one's going to offer him a city full of wealth delivered to his front door, making him far richer than he could ever imagine as a ways to kind of take glory for the victory himself. And Abram now is going to have to choose which king he's going to align with and which king he is going to reject. This is battle number two. And we see by the end of the story, Abram chooses Melchizedek, and he gives to him, rather than choosing the king of Sodom and taking from him, he chooses wisely in his victory. Now, I know all of this is kind of different. It's kind of odd. These verses, there's only two verses. We just read 17 and 18. It's kind of like a small little text there. But actually, in all of this, we learn some very big life lessons. I'd say the first one being this. Our physical battles often lead to spiritual battles. Our physical battles are often followed by spiritual battles. Verse 16, Abram just fights as hard as he can in the physical to rescue his nephew Lot. Verse 18, he's now back with Lot, and he's all of a sudden, just right after, the, right after this, he's facing a spiritual battle, deciding, deciding who's going to be his king and who's going to get glory for this victory. I got something that I want to say to us this morning. I think I'm right on this. You be the judge. But I think as believers, right, with a lot of good things about us, one thing I think we struggle with, one thing I think we do foolishly and unwisely is I think that you and I, we are the kings of celebrating too early. We, we should be a people of celebration. We should celebrate often. We should celebrate each other. But I think many, many times, at least in my experience in the church, we celebrate too early. We celebrate at the end of a physical battle when a spiritual battle is just beginning. 
I think we've been sort of just inundated with this, taught this by like the movies. In the movies, when the physical battle is over, the movie is over. Just take, I don't know, just take an old Disney movie. Um, Snow White, right, and the seven dwarves. Snow White eats the poison apple. She dies. Then the prince comes, brings her back to life. Mission accomplished, victory. They run off into the sunset, roll the credits. That's all we see, right? Physical battle's over. What we don't see is their marriage two years in, and they have a spiritual battle of trying not to kill each other over how they roll up the toothpaste tube. Okay? We don't see all that. We don't see a battle with infertility. We don't see a spiritual battle of him trying to lead and her trying to follow. We don't see, we just see physical battles won. We're good, we're done. Roll the credits. If Genesis 14 was a movie, right here it would fade to black and the director's name would pop up. He's won. Lot's been rescued. Enemy's been defeated. This is where they're supposed to live happily ever after. But the Bible is not a book of fairy tales. The Bible is not make-believe. It is not legend. It is not a movie. It is a book about real life. The Bible's not just a true book. The Bible is a, get this, honest book. It is dripping with reality. And here's reality from Genesis 14. Our physical battles often lead to spiritual ones. I'll give you this example. A handful of years ago, I'm in Pomel, our neighborhood here. There's a guy who was dying. All these diseases, hospital bed, supposed to be dead. Okay, uh, All the doctors, the family, everybody... He, he, this guy's dying. We pray, Lord, heal this man. Lord, raise up this man. Lord, give this man a second shot at life. After a couple of weeks, that happened. Out of nowhere, he's up. He's walking around. Diseases have subsided. Whatever it was, I can't remember to a T, but let's say it was cancer. Cancer's gone. He's alive. Physical battle has won. I went to see him after he got out of the hospital thinking I was going to a party. And I show up at his house, knock on the door, come in and sit on the couch, and he's weeping. But he's not weeping tears of joy. He's weeping like he's been wounded. And I'm like, you just survived like seven diseases. Like you just, your prayers are answered. You lived. You lived. He's weeping, weeping, weeping. I'm like, what's going on? You come to find out now that the physical battle's over, he's facing a spiritual one. He cannot figure out what his purpose is. There must be a purpose if I survived all this. Why did God spare me? He's facing crisis, existential identity crisis, a spiritual battle, especially because some of his family members died from those same diseases. And he's like, they, if they would have survived, they could have done way more for all of our family. I survived. I can't do anything for the family. Why would God have given me survival? And he's facing a spiritual battle of hopelessness after the physical battle has taken place. We need to learn this. You pray for someone to get a job, they get a job, don't stop praying. They now have a spiritual battle of being a light at work. They, you pray for someone, I don't know, to get financially blessed, right? And then they get a raise. Don't stop praying because now they have the spiritual battle of having to steward that money. A lot of times the physical battles we face lead us to spiritual battles and we tend to celebrate early. The battle's not over in Genesis 14, verse 16. 
battle keeps going. It morphs to a spiritual battle because we're not just physical beings. We're also spiritual beings, and thus we're going to face spiritual battles after our physical ones. That's partly what this story is tipping us off to. But it goes a little bit further, teaches us something even more interesting, at least to me, is that it's teaching us that our physical battles end up as spiritual battles many times, but this is the weird part. This is the part you don't think of. This is the, the, the interesting part, that this is true whether our physical experiences end in defeat or in victory. Maybe even, maybe, especially victory. In fact, I'd say that's the second big lesson that we learned from this story is that great temptation often comes after great victory, and the greater the victory, the greater the temptation. Right? Great temptation comes after great victory. Abram has won. He defeated four kings with 318 dudes from his farm. That's a great day. And he comes back with all the people that were captive and all the loot that was stolen, and now he's facing temptation like no other. It's even probably a greater temptation than the temptation he faced back in chapter 12 when everything was defeated and he was facing a famine. See, we know temptation comes after defeat, right? When we have a friend or family member, they hit rock bottom, they feel guilty, they feel discouraged, so they quit reading their Bible. We get all that. But what we often forget is that there's a lot of people in this room, you didn't read your Bible in the last month, and it's because everything's going so well, you've forgotten why you need a Bible. Amen. See, really, temptation doesn't just come from defeat. It comes from victory. Perhaps you know someone who faced great difficulties in life, but it's not because of how they reacted to failure. It's how they reacted to passing. It's not how they reacted to suffering. It's how they reacted to success. I mean, extreme examples are like people who become celebrities and then take their life for a lottery winner who somehow ends up more broke than before he got the winning ticket. People become billionaires and they lose their marriage. What's going on with all this? Why does, why, why does that happen? You get everything you ever wanted and then you ruin your life. Why is that a human story that plays out over and over and over and can play out for us? It's because great temptation comes with great victory. Reason being is, and this is very important for you to know about life, very important for you to know about life, all of our vulnerabilities are multiplied in victory. You are most vulnerable when you are most victorious, many times. Right? When we hit victory, we let our guard down. Right? So it's Father's Day. Let's use a Father's Day example. You got to ask dad for something big. When I was a kid, uh, I remember having to ask my dad for a drum set. We lived in a small two-bedroom house. Our neighbors were so close you could practically touch them by putting your hand out the window. And I wanted a drum set. I had to ask my dad for a drum set. When you got to ask your dad for something big, what do you do? You wait till he's in a good mood. Do you realize this yet, dads? I, I, I did it as a kid. I'm falling for it every time to this day. I'm still falling for it. My kids already know that. Wait till he's in a good mood. Why? Because he's more likely to give in. His guard is down. This is the same thing for us. Satan knows this about us. After a great win, our guard is down. This is why the Bible says 
Romans, I believe it's 12, right? If anyone thinks he stands, let him take heed lest he fall. After great winds, the guard is down. Our vulnerabilities are, are, are multiplied. We're exposed. Satan knows this. So our temptation just slides right in. We get proud in a great victory when things are going well on our best days, when the company is growing, when the family's growing, when the church is growing, whatever. We get proud, right? We start to believe all our own press. We take compliments too seriously, and anybody who criticizes, they're just jealous. They're just jealous. We do the whole fake humility thing, right? Like, it was all God. But tell me again how I changed your life. Tell me that part, yeah. Tell me about that part where I was awesome. I mean, it was all God, really? But can you use, can you use my name in that story again? This idea of fake humility comes to the forefront because really, deep down, our victories make us proud, so we become vulnerable because pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. A lot of times after victories, we're tired, right? A lot of victories that you've won, they're hard fought. A lot of your accomplishments, you worked your whole life for those accomplishments, and now you're tired. Enter Abraham. This dude's 75, just ran 200 miles with 318 dudes and artillery. He's coming back. He's tired, right? We, we go to accomplish something. We go, we succeed, and that fatigue comes in, and we're too tired to fight for anything else. We just fought for a victory. We're done fighting. The devil knows this, and that's why the devil chooses victorious moments to tempt us. And think about the temptation of Jesus. He comes on the scene, the God-man, fully God, fully man, perfect son of God, starts doing miracles. He gets baptized. The spirit descends on him like a dove. The father's voice calls out, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He then goes into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days. Talk about a victory. Talk about being close to God the Father. Talk about fatigue. And it's that moment, Matthew 4, where the devil shows up and offers him great temptation after great victory. Why is Satan showing up right there? In Matthew 4. Because that's where Jesus was tired. Because after all, he was 100% man as well as 100% God. We're tired after the battle. Even if we win, we get blinded by victory, let our guard down. So here's the great irony of the story that we're being taught. Here's, something, here's the life lesson, the wisdom we need from the scriptures today. Our heart can be hardest when life is easiest. It's a conundrum. It's a phenomenon. It's just true. Right? Our guard can be down when our mood is up. Right? Our, our, we, we can be closer to losing after victory than we were before victory. We're often weakest spiritually after some sort of physical win. Great temptation comes after great victory here in the life of Abram. And what is that temptation? Let's hit this. What is the victory's temptation, right? So we've been talking about, hey, you're vulnerable after victory. Temptation's coming. Well, what is the temptation we need to look out for? Here's the temptation in Genesis 14. Let's skip down to verse 21. Verse 21, go down there, because that's where we see the king of Sodom's invitation, the, the temptation that comes to Abram. It says this in verse 21, it says, the king of Sodom said to Abram, you give me the people, you give me the persons, right? Give me the city of Sodom back, give me the people back, but you take the goods for yourself. Wow, the spoils of war. 
Right? This is an entire city worth of wealth. We're talking gold, silver, furniture, animals, art, clothing, food, Bitcoin, everything. Right? Got to get you crypto people in there. Right? Trying to make the story real for you. The idea is this is a ton of money. This is perhaps well over 10 times the amount of wealth Abram already has. Could you imagine this temptation? Could you imagine this for yourself? I don't know what's in your checking account this morning, but what if someone came to you and said, listen, you've been working hard. I'm going to make that 10 times, that number, with a snap of my fingers. That's a pretty good deal. I'll take you up on that offer. That's the temptation. But here's a question. Is that really what he's won? Did Abraham go to war to increase his wealth tenfold? And the answer is no. Abram went to war to get Lot back, and he has him back. See, here is victory's temptation. You ready? This is the temptation after your wins, after your good days, when you're in peace and joy. Here's the temptation for you and for me, the human heart. It is to take more than we've won. That's the temptation of victory. Abram's facing a city full of wealth, but that's not what he went out to win. That's more than he's won. Now, he could justify it all day long, right? Like, oh, well, the king of Sodom is offering. Or I guess no one would have this wealth at all if I didn't go out to war, so might as well go to me. Or I guess, hey, at least I'll do something good with the wealth. So sure, why not take it, right? You could justify it, but that's why it's a temptation, The temptation is to take more than he's won. And this is a core temptation of being human. This is deep within our sinful nature. This is basically the same temptation that was offered to Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden. They're in God's garden, God's paradise. They are God's people. They are with God in perfect harmony. And the serpent says, take a little more and become God. We've seen this time and time again. You've seen this time and time again. We could all swap stories, hundreds of them. Right? Uh, someone battles addiction. They get victory for a long time. They're clean for a month. They're clean for a year. They're clean for two years, whatever. Then they're invited to a party, and they think, hey, I deserve this. I, I've been working really hard at, at, be, at staying clean and being clean, so I can go. I can have fun. I can joke with my old friends. I've, I've won. It's like, no, no, no. You won sobriety. You didn't win a free pass to every party in town. See what I'm saying? You're looking to take more than what you've won. Some of our greatest sins do not come from what we've lost, but they come from taking more than we've won. Some of our greatest loss doesn't come from hitting rock bottom. It comes from a response to victory, and we take more than we've won. You see, if you take more than you win, it always comes with a catch. And that catch will cause you to lose everything you did win. I remember barely being in kindergarten. I have like two, I think I have two memories from kindergarten. One is I had an awesome dinosaur sweater that I really wish I still had because it was, it was, it was awesome. It was happening. I got to get that. Um, I have a picture of it. Two is I got one trip to the treasure box. There was only one day apparently where I was good enough. It was open every day, but there was one day where I got to go to the treasure box. Now, I found the treasure box to be a huge disappointment. You know what was in the treasure box? Stuff like pencils. I'm like, I was just good at school all day. You're giving me more school supplies. I'm only in kindergarten, but I know a raw deal when I see one. But yeah, there's like cool pencils in there. So I took two. 
And I went and sat down. Because that's what I thought. I mean, I, was, I thought that was a fair trade, right? I was like, eh, I'd probably get two. My teacher came up. She saw that I took two. You're only supposed to take one. She took both pencils. True story. I was a pretty sensitive kid. I cried the rest of the day. Rest of the day. It was like, it was like 9 a.m. I cried the whole rest of the day. I cried however long we had left. I remember this very well. It was very vivid. I've told this to a counselor multiple times. Right? The idea is like, like she took everything because I took too much. The idea is true with Abram. What happens if he takes this wealth from the king of sin, the king of Sodom? What happens? Well, he'll be now in partnership with the king of sin. He'll, he'll have something from the king of sin. In fact, that's what Abram says in verse 23. He says, I'm not taking this so that you can never say, I made you rich, Abram. Right? Imagine like, the next war Sodom and Gomorrah get into, they come knocking on Abram's door like, hey, it's time to fight. You've got to go fight with us. And he's like, I don't fight with you. I'm not, I'm not your teammate. I'm not in on this. They say, well, you see all this wealth? We gave that to you. So either you come fight with us or we burn the place down. Or maybe it goes something like this. Abram, you just got a lot of currency for the city of Sodom, best place to spend it, city of Sodom, why don't you come by once in a while? Why don't you get an apartment next to Lot's? Next thing you know, he's living in Sodom and Gomorrah as a wealthy man in the city. And we all know what happens to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah come about chapter 19. Abram could be in there while it explodes. You see, it's always going to come with this catch, right? You, 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 you have to understand that the temptation's victory is to take more than we've won, but it actually ends up costing us everything. So what does Abram need in this moment? Well, he needs strength to resist. Here's the idea. You need strength after victory. What's he need? He needs his faith after victory. He needs God after his victory. We need to follow Jesus to victory, through victory, and you need to follow Jesus after your victories. It is not time to abandon him. But here's the good news. Jesus isn't just with us in defeat. Jesus is also with us in victory. That Jesus isn't just with us when he, we suffer. He's with us in our success to sustain us and sanctify us so that we enjoy victories and blessings and good days and wins in life rather than those becoming another defeat. So we've learned a few things. The temptation comes after victory. It's a temptation to take more than we've won, right? Physical battle turns to spiritual battle. Here's this fourth point. It's the most beautiful point. It's the good news. Good news. Jesus sustains us after victory. So like we said, two kings come out to greet Abram at the same time. King of Sodom, city of sin. Hey, take 10 times more than you won, right? Uh, this wealth, should Abram take it, will destroy him. But the other king saves him from it. And that king's name is Melchizedek. He speaks first. He blesses Abram by giving him everything he needs to keep his head on straight through the spiritual battle that has now begun after the physical battle. We see this in verse 17 through 20. Let's read it again. Some of this is repeat. Some of this is new info. 17, the king of Sodom goes out, meets Abram after his return from the slaughter of Catalammer. Verse 18, Melchizedek comes out to meet him, king of Salem. He brings forth bread and wine. He's the priest of the most high God. Verse 19, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram, the God of most high, 
possessor of heaven and earth, right? Your, your God has everything. You're not going to need whatever Sodom has to offer you. You don't need 10 times your wealth because your God has a million times your wealth and he's with you always. Uh, verse 20, he says, and blessed be that God, that most high God, which hath delivered thine hands into thine, uh, delivered thine enemies into thine hand. So he said, like, it wasn't your strategy. It wasn't your 318 farmer dudes packing heat, right? It wasn't, it wasn't you that won all that. That victory was given to you by God. And Abram responds to this. He, Abram, verse 20, he, Abram, gives Melchizedek tithes of all. So he gives him 10% of everything he already has. So instead of taking 10 times what he has, he gives Melchizedek 10% of what he does have. And that is when the great temptation comes. And we'll see that in this power, Abram's refusing it. So who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who is Melchizedek? Right? Anybody else scratching their head? Like, wait, where did you come from? Right? There's no, he's not mentioned in the background. He's not mentioned in the battle. He's not mentioned elsewhere in Genesis. He's not one of the five kings. He's not one of the four kings. He's not in the family of Lot. He is not even in Jerusalem at this point, which is where he's the king. Of. I mean, who? We need to see some ID, right? That's what I want to say to Melchizedek. Who is this guy? Well, that's a great question. Answering that question may be a tad above my pay grade. Theologians have been debating this for centuries. So it's not likely I'm going to settle this in the next five minutes at Griggs, right? But hey, with God, all things are possible. Here's the idea, okay? Here's what we know for sure. Melchizedek is at least, at the least, he is a type of Jesus. Okay? Some would say he is Jesus, that this is a Christophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of God the Son before he becomes the God-man. Maybe, maybe, but he's at least, here's what we know for sure, he's at least a type of Jesus. We learn this in Psalm 110.4, Hebrews 5-7, through 7, where it tells us directly Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus, which is what a type is. A type in the Old Testament is a human character who does something that tips us off to the Messiah that's coming. Like he's going to be like that guy. So when Abram goes to sacrifice his son, it's a type. So we know God the Father is going to sacrifice God the Son in our place for our sins. Melchizedek is like that. All that he does foreshadows the work of Jesus. So Melchizedek, he doesn't appear in any genealogy, which is really rare for Genesis, if you haven't noticed. It doesn't tell us how old he was when he dies. So as a literary function, he's at least got, he's got no beginning and no end in that sense. Jesus has no beginning and no end. He's with us through the good, through the bad, forever. Melchizedek comes out with bread and wine. Pretty curious, right? Communion before communion was a thing. These are the symbols of Jesus' salvation. Jesus, our Savior, comes out to meet us with what bread and wine symbolizes. He meets us with bloody hands. He meets us with uh, his blood shed in our place. He meets us with his body broken as a sacrifice for us. He comes to us with bread and wine. Melchizedek blesses Abram as a priest. And the Bible says on my count at least seven times that Jesus is our priest after the order of Melchizedek or like Melchizedek. And what does a priest do? In the Old Testament, the priest gets the people to God. 
So if people need to be forgiven, the priest offers a sacrifice for their atonement. People want to pray, the priest speaks to God on their behalf. In the Old Testament, people want to be in God's presence, the people conduct uh, the present uh, priest become, uh, conducts a worship ceremony to get people into the presence of God. That's what Jesus does for us in an ultimate sense. He ushers us into God's presence through his blood, his death, his resurrection, that we might be with God through our defeats, our victories, and through ultimate victory in heaven forever and ever. Hallelujah. He is our high priest. After the order of Melchizedek, he ushers us into eternal life, the presence of God, one day. But this is what Melchizedek is doing for Abram on this day and in this story after his great victory. Melchizedek, this shadow of Jesus, at least, okay, he comes out to commune with Abram after the battle in the midst of this victory, and he helps him. He delivers insight into the victory. Verse 20, he says, you won because God delivered them into your hand, right? And you need to hear this this morning. You won because God won. You need to know this. If your family's going well, that's because God is giving you a good family. If your wealth is going well, God is giving you wealth. If your church is going well, God is at work in your church. Your ministry is going well, God's at work in your ministry. Whatever victory you have, it's really God's victory. It's not something for you to glory in. It's something for you to glorify God for. He guides Abram to cling to God, not the victory itself. We need to cling to Christ, not our happiness. You enjoy your happiness. You trust Christ. Cling to Christ when you win. Enjoy the win, but glorify Christ, not the win. On the good day, cling to Christ, not the good day. That's what he guides him to do as his priest. And Abram responds, and he gives him 10%, which is Abram's way of admitting this is all God's to begin with. It was Abram's way to honor God rather than receive honor for the victory. It was his way to glorify God rather than receive glory for the victory. It was his chance to be a steward of his victory rather than be suckered by it. It's Melchizedek, it's Jesus that strengthens us to refuse temptation and victory. Look at verse 21 through 23 as we close. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, you take the goods. Verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, the most high God. Verse 23, that I will not take from a thread, even to a shoelace, basically, anything from you, that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, made Abram rich. I made Abram rich. So you can't hold this over my head. I don't trust this victory. I'm not taking credit. I'm not on your team. We're not associated. This victory isn't partially yours because this victory isn't even partially mine. All glory goes to God. Amen. That's Abram's response, and it must be our response. This is Abram's second victory for the day. He has won in the physical, and now he wins in the spiritual. Melchizedek is a picture of Jesus and what Jesus does for us. Jesus saves us from our victories so that they might not corrupt us. Jesus comes to us, and he tells us he's the vine, we're the branches. Without him, we can do nothing. 
He reminds us, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? He tells us to humble ourselves and to keep our guard up and to take his yoke upon us, which is light when we are tired. He tells us to give a part of all we have to the least of these and to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven, for our treasure is really just God's treasure anyway. Jesus saves us from our best days. Jesus saves us from the ups not just the downs. He saves us from the mountaintop, not just the valley. He saves us from victory, not just defeat. This is good news. And here's our application. Don't just minister to people when they suffer. Minister, like Melchizedek does, to people when they succeed. Don't just help them not lose sight of Jesus when they're hurt. Help people not lose sight of Jesus when they're hyped. You pray for someone to have children, and they do. Pray for them, because now they're facing a battle of raising those children. Happy Father's Day. You pray for someone to get the promotion. Pray for them after they get it, because now they're going to be convinced they're better than everybody else that didn't get it, and they're facing a spiritual battle if they're not careful. We need to minister to people in their success. And as for you, do not lose your faith on your best days. Even as you win great victories, keep your faith in Jesus. Don't just praise him in the storm. Praise him with the spoils of war. For truly, his is the victory in the first place. With that, let's praise him now. We're going to sing two more songs before we close up. I know we're running a little over. It's a great way to spend our time, though, praising our King who gives us the victory. We're going to sing two hymns as the musicians come up. I'll pray, and we will worship God. Whether you're here and it's a great day of loss for you, or whether you're here and it's a great win. Whether you're experiencing defeat or victory, it's our turn to praise Him for a couple songs. Jesus, thank you for the victory you give us. Help us to steward our victory. Help us to cling to you in our victory. Help us to trust you in our joy. Help us to trust you in our peace. Help us to glorify you in the goodness of life, that we may not be blinded by the goodness of life and lose sight of God. Thank you that you are our Melchizedek, constantly bringing us back to the Father, rather than the wealth of this life and the winds of this life and the, the, the glory of this life. Thank you. And we give to you your praise as remembrance that all we have is yours anyway. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and stand and take out your white uh, booklets and turn to page.